It's July 18th, and welcome to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. The concert season is drawing to a close here at the National Arts Centre Orchestra. Our final concert is coming up at Rideau Hall, the residence of the Governor-General of Canada, on Saturday, July 22nd at 4pm. I hope those of you in the Ottawa area will be able to join us for this free outdoor concert featuring the music of Mendelssohn, Mozart, Haydn and Beethoven. Well, in the five months since we began presenting these NACO casts, I've heard from many of you and your ideas of podcast subjects. One of the recurring themes is a need for a deeper understanding of the life of the orchestral musician. Many of you have asked for some insights to the daily life of musicians as well as the complex structure of the symphony orchestra. So, in this final podcast of the season, I thought it would be appropriate to talk about how our profession works. And in particular, I want to give you all a solid primer in the basic structures of how symphony musicians play. To start with, let's answer the most basic question – Do we do this for a living? Well, you'd be surprised how often this question is asked. And the answer is not simple, because there's a very broad range of professional structures to be found among the many orchestras throughout North America. By my calculation, there are about 140 symphony orchestras on the continent that make a claim to being essentially full-time professional organizations. There are hundreds more, of course, which could be categorized as community orchestras, many of which employ a certain number of core members who are paid for their services, and undoubtedly there are countless other orchestras of a completely amateur status. Orchestral musicians in North America are almost exclusively unionized. We are all members of the American Federation of Musicians of the U.S. and Canada, the AFM for short. Like any trade union or guild, the AFM has hundreds of local offices in cities across the continent, and each local office defines the terms and working conditions under which its membership will work. So, the AFM represents musicians in every genre, from rock and roll to world music, jazz music, classical artists, the whole gamut. Within the AFM, the symphonic musicians are undoubtedly the best organized. In addition to our membership and representation by the AFVM, we've organized ourselves into three large collective groups by which we are able to share our concerns and advance our professional interests. In the United States, the largest and most influential of these symphonic organizations is the International Congress of Symphony and Opera Musicians. That's ICSOM for short. It's a group that represents the musicians of 52 member orchestras. And, of course, this would include all the biggies in the U.S., orchestras like the New York Philharmonic, the Chicago Symphony, the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. You get the idea. There's also a second organization that represents an even larger group of 64 orchestras called the Regional Orchestra Players Association, ROPA for short. And this is a group of orchestras that includes smaller budget organizations, with musicians who are generally working in smaller cities with less generous remuneration and shorter performing seasons, but who are nevertheless professional in every sense. These two organizations therefore represent 116 professional orchestras and several thousand musicians. 
Here in Canada, our companion organization is OXM, the Organization of Canadian Symphony Musicians. There are 20 orchestras that hold memberships in OXM, including those in Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton. You get the idea. Well, I still haven't answered that question, do we do this for a living, have I? Well, the answer is, by definition, that musicians in the Oxum orchestras do indeed earn their livings, primarily as orchestral performers. But there are disparities. Incomes in these orchestras vary wildly, from those at the top of the ladder, Montreal and Toronto symphonies in the National Arts Centre Orchestra, to those on the lower rungs, like Saskatoon or Thunder Bay. Generally, the largest cities have the largest budgets, the most concerts, and the largest number of musicians. But the level of performing excellence is astoundingly good across the board. Base salaries in Oxum orchestras range from about 20000 to $70,000 per year, and seasons vary from about 35 weeks of employment per year to as high as 46 weeks. Obviously, there's a strong incentive to supplement these salaries with as much related work as possible, and teaching becomes a big component of this. Indeed, the music departments of universities and colleges throughout Canada are filled with active members of the local symphony orchestras. Orchestral musicians work a rather odd schedule, largely organized around the concert days that have become established in their respective communities. For example, in Ottawa, the NAC orchestra maintains a fairly regular series of orchestral concerts on Wednesdays and Thursday evenings, alternating at times with weeks devoted to pops concerts from Thursday through Saturday, and then we have weeks of ballet, opera, and many Saturday children's concerts. In many cities, afternoon concerts are a tradition, with symphony Sundays or midweek matinees a regular part of their seasons. Orchestral schedules are structured around what we call services. Now, a service is a rehearsal or a concert. It's typical within the conventions of North American orchestras to work either seven, eight, or nine services per week. Subscription concert series are generally prepared with an average of four rehearsals for each program, and rehearsals are typically two and a half hours in length. Opera or ballet services are often a bit longer, and programs like pops or young people's concerts are often presented with only one or two rehearsals. To put this in simpler terms, Those of you here in Ottawa who attend our NAC Orchestra regular series concerts are hearing programs prepared with an average of about seven hours of rehearsal. If you're doing the math, you have probably calculated that our typical work week is 20 hours of on-stage rehearsal time. Now, musicians and top orchestras have daily maintenance schedules to keep their abilities honed, so individual practice and part preparation typically adds anywhere from two to five hours per day of additional time. Now, brass players have to maintain consistent warm-ups day in and day out. Oboists and bassoonists have to make reeds on a constant basis. Well, musicians of all instruments have to maintain daily technique work. And we do have to know our parts before showing up for that first rehearsal. The amount of individual practice time required for a program depends to a great extent on whether the repertoire is familiar or not. Established players in orchestras can usually pull out any Beethoven or Brahms symphony without an inordinate amount of attention. Some of it is a little bit like riding a bicycle. On the other hand, if we fail to pay attention to good technique, good intonation, the cumulative effect of inattention is a very quickly deteriorating physical ability. So good professional players learn how to pay habitual attention to the musical integrity and physical health of their playing. 
In this way, a regular balance is achieved between the benefits of private practice and group rehearsal, wherein both approaches support the ongoing quality of the playing. So, play. Play is such a loaded word. It's the verb we use to describe our professional work. What instrument do you play? What music are we playing? Wow, that fiddle player played so well. (laughs) Do lawyers play? Do accountants play? Is the schoolteacher playful in her environment? You can see how the whole language of our profession tends to create a bit of a disconnect. The concept of music as play is so central to our audience's experience that they're often a bit surprised to learn how structured our work environment actually is. So let me take a few minutes and describe to you some of the formal constructs that define our day today play. If I call it work, please don't be disappointed. I mentioned earlier that symphony musicians are members of the AFM, the Musicians' Union. As members of the local union, we form a small bargaining unit, and the union acts as our representation in defining the working agreements with our employers. Throughout the orchestra business in North America, certain generalities exist. First, musicians work under collective labor agreements, which stipulate a very broad range of conditions, including the salary, hours, and an incredibly long list of details about how we work and with whom, how we are hired, and even how we might be fired. Collective agreements between musicians and employers are documents that frequently run between 50 or 100 pages in length. They define how long we can rehearse at one sitting, when and how long our rehearsal breaks are, the minimum temperature for rehearsal, if you can believe that. Well, it's important if it's too cold, the instruments are damaged. Even the minimum amount of light available for reading music. There are pages and pages devoted to defining probational contracts, pages devoted to audition committees, to mechanisms for advancing artistic ideas, rules governing harassment, rules governing who sits where in a violin section, Regulations about sick leave, guidelines for paid and unpaid absences, agreements about pension contributions. (laughs) The point is, we may be playing, but our working environment is as strictly governed as that of an automobile assembly plant or the floor of a hospital. Orchestra contracts, or collective agreements, are the terms that define our professional status and conduct. But ultimately, they are designed to further our artistic goals as musicians. Now, in an earlier episode of our NACOcasts, I talked at some length about the history of conductors and that old era of the dictatorial maestro. Indeed, 50 years ago, conductors still wielded unilateral powers and had basically had the ability to hire and fire at will. Needless to say, this is no longer the case. In fact, much of the musician-conductor relationship has changed. Our collective agreements protect us from arbitrary decisions by one individual, and we have elaborate mechanisms for review procedures. While conductors still exercise a dominant role as artistic decision-makers and remain powerful in terms of authority and influence, today's symphony orchestras generally reflect a spirit of mutual respect and responsibility. But music directors remain lightning rods for the highly charged and highly variable attitudes of audiences, critics, and musicians. When a conductor first arrives in a community, expectations soar and interest peaks, The honeymoons can be short-lived, however, as the reality of just one individual trying to meet the needs of many musicians and large audiences plays out. Leadership of an orchestra, like the leadership of any organization, depends primarily on passion and intelligence. 
What our collective agreements can't mandate is how that leadership is exercised and how it's followed. In my previous orchestra, we had an old joke about Article 17b, the drag clause. (laughs) This fictitious clause of the collective agreement called for the cancellation of any concert that the musicians considered a drag. Simple majority would do. Well, somehow we were never able to negotiate that into the contract. But seriously, if you agree that wherever the word drag substitutes for boring, then you ought to get universal agreement from conductors, musicians, managements, and audiences. The worst part of professional music making is when the performer finds himself playing in a simulacrum of a meaningful performance, where we're merely exercising the craft but not really touching the art. Curiously, musicians don't have to love the personality of a conductor for the relationship to succeed. Even in today's collegial, democratic, well-unionized environment, musicians want challenge. They want it to be a little difficult. They want to feel the bar has been placed high. Great performances arise out of conviction. And while some sense of mutual conviction is best, orchestras are not artistic democracies and they thrive on strong personalities. Well, this is my final NACOcast for the season. The NAC Orchestra will be taking our annual summer break, and I'll be personally off for several summer festival engagements in the U.S. But I'm glad to tell you that the NACOcast will be back again in strength, beginning in mid-September, and I'm looking forward to bringing you a whole new season of ideas and discussions to help illuminate the world of classical music. I'll leave you today with a bit of music. Our orchestra takes particular pride in our performances of the core classical repertoire, So here is Pincus Zuckerman conducting the National Arts Center Orchestra in the Larghetto of Beethoven's Second Symphony.
Well, that's all for this edition and this season of the NACOcast. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to NACOcast at gmail.com. We do look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and the other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca slash podcasts. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NACOcast. So until September, this is Christopher Millard saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.